I'm honored to be in your presence, thankful to God for traveling grace and arriving mercies, appreciative to whoever it was that extended the invitation. I'm sure it was Jeff McKeever, who we're praying for right now, as well as others. And I thank you in advance for your attention. I want to get a few ground rules out of the way, and then we'll spend some time together in the word. Number one, I'm from that part of the Christian family where the preaching moment tends to be dialogical. There, somebody has it already. So if you cannot say amen, just look amen. If, there's, if you got an amen app, use that. I, however you need to communicate your agreement with the truth of the word, feel free to do so. Also, I anticipate in the time that we have together uh, just to, for lack of a better word, um, converse with you around the word. That is to say, the task that I was assigned was to, to preach, and I anticipate doing that. But at the same time, I want you to, I want you to dialogue with me not just in your amens, but in your thought process, and even writing down questions that you might have afterwards. Because I'm not here to do a brain dump. We're here to fellowship in the gospel. And so it's been my experience in settings like this, and I hope that we can sort of accelerate the process that very often the times in the breaks, the times over meals, the times as we just walk to and fro and commune with one another, tend to be as impactful as the actual planned sessions. And I pray that that occurs here. Finally, last thing I'll say is that though I've never seen you before because of our kinship in Christ, I'm going to be with you forever. So treat me like you're a cousin. Uh, that is to say, don't try to freeze me out. Don't be looking at me funny. Uh, go ahead and Again, either say amen, look amen, app amen, do something to let me know that you're along with me. Now, humility, the low road to glory, is the theme of the conference. And I want to make some preliminary comments up front before I take my text uh, so that you can understand my biases and then sort of where I'm going to be going. For the last three years, the world has been engrossed, enthralled, arrested by a deadly mutating virus. Masks and mandates, vaccines and boosters have slowed down and seemingly arrested the virus. But while we were fighting on that front, another more clearly visible yet subtly dangerous pandemic was creeping across the globe even before COVID-19. The virus of hubris is manifested in authoritarianism from Russia to Belarus Venezuela to China, North Korea to Myanmar, where leadership 
in the political sphere in certain pockets has been become incapable of shame, unabashed in its ability to lie. And there are even pockets of that showing itself in these yet to be United States, but I'm not really concerned, nor am I here to talk to you about global politics. I'm more concerned about the fact that it seems like the virus of hubris is trying to infect the body of Christ. The symptoms are clear, tribalism, an unwillingness to be entreated, the insecurity that hides behind social media barricades and throws theological grenades instead of engaging in adult conversation, when empathy is viewed as a sin and coming together to reason is viewed as compromise, then hubris is somehow or another infecting the body. So with our time tonight and tomorrow, we want to focus on how to walk in the way of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the path we want to take. The path is clear. Humility is the low road to glory. So in my time with you, I'm going to examine three passages of scripture, one Old Testament narrative, one Psalm, and one from the epistles. I will not be teaching anything new. I will, however, take some obtuse angles to get at the importance of humility because I believe what's at stake is the glory of God and the plausibility of the gospel. So tonight, I invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. I'm only going to read verses 14 through 21 and invite you to keep your Bible open there with me. Genesis chapter 50, verse 14 through 21, reads thusly, After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. 
But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Here we are at the end of the first book of the Bible, a book that opens up in a garden and ends with a coffin. And here we are in this particular chapter, this particular unit of thought between the death of Jacob and the death of Joseph, where we have this brief exchange between Joseph and his brothers, the culmination of a long and torturous relationship and process of humiliation. Joseph's brothers, now that Jacob is dead, believe that now Joseph is going to exact revenge upon them because according to their own words, they did evil to him. You remember the story how they were going to kill him, but one of the older brothers said, let's not kill him, let's put him over here in this pit. And he anticipated going to get Joseph out after the brothers had cooled down, but while he was gone, the other brothers sold him into slavery. And so let's spend a few moments digging in to this dialogue to see if we can do what a preacher ought always do. In every movie set, there's someone called the focus puller. Their job is in every scene to make sure that the main character is in focus. I want to challenge you that even though the supporting cast is extremely compelling, that God is the main character in this scene. And this scene is designed to help us understand that evil cannot frustrate God's initiatives or derail the destiny of his people. More importantly, your perspective on God will determine how and if you can make sense out of life. So they come up with this scheme. There's no indication that Jacob actually told them this, but they go to Joseph and say, Daddy said that you need to forgive us. Joseph, when he hears their words, breaks down and cries. This is not the first time he cries in the book. As a matter of fact, it's probably like the seventh time he's cried since chapter 42 as he's working through the process of processing his trauma. But he says something very interesting. This is all I want to get at tonight. He says something very interesting after he weeps, and they come down and bow to him once again in fulfillment of the dream that Joseph had when he was a child. But this time when he bows, there's something different about Joseph's perspective. Not his perspective on them, his perspective about God. And that makes all the difference. 
that makes all the difference. Let's look at it. Joseph basically says three things. This first thing he says is, do not fear. Am I in the place of God? Now, that's the quintessential question. If we're talking about humility, here it is right here. I told you I was going to get at an obtuse angle. See, when you, when you fight, you got to learn how to hit them from a different angle. I'm, I'm giving you a hook right here because there's nothing in the text that says humility, but this is what humility is about. The question on the table is, am I in God's place? I, I wish Adam had asked this question. I, I wish Eve had asked this question. I wish everyone would ask this question. He's indicating that I've come to the place, having processed the trauma in my life and examined as I look backwards over my life, that I'm not in God's position. I'm not in God's place. This is very interesting because this is not the first time we hear that exact phrase, am I in God's place? You remember back in chapter 30 when Rachel, who was barren, asked Jacob, give me a kid or I'm going to die. Jacob said, am I in God's place? In other words, I'm not in position to give life. They prayed, and blessed be God, before the end of that chapter, Joseph was born. Now Joseph, here, after daddy is dead, revisits that question. Not only am I not in the place to give life, I'm not in the place to take away life. That's God's position. Am I in God's place is the question of the ages because every time I've gotten in trouble is because I've been out of place. And you don't have to say, man, I can read your transcript from here. Every time you've sinned is because you've gotten out of place and tried to take God's place. Every difficulty we have in our relationships, in our churches, somebody's out of place. Somebody's trying to take God's seat. He says, am I in God's place? My brother, are you trying to be God in your current situation? Are you exerting yourself as if you're omnipotent, as if you're omniscient, as if you're omnipresent? Sometimes it's subtle the way we try to take God's place. We, we're not, from our perspective, we're not necessarily filled with hubris, but sometimes we're trying to rescue people that only God can rescue. And the question is, listen, Joseph said, I've come to the point in my life where I recognize I'm not in God's place. God has a particular position. And because of his position, guess what? He has certain prerogatives. Look at what he says. Verse 19, he says, do not fear, I'm in God's place. But verse 20, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. See, when you have a certain position, there's certain prerogatives that attach. And so Joseph has not only gained perspective on God's place and 
in gaining that perspective, now he knows his place. But he recognizes that by virtue of God's position and how he's proven himself down through the years, at every juncture of trauma, at every intersection of tribulation, he comes to this conclusion that you meant it for evil, but what you meant for evil, God turned around for good because he has that type of power. He can turn evil intentions toward his good providence. He has power. If you get this perspective, it is going to help you with your humility. Listen, my brothers, because of who God is and where he sits, he can do whatever he wants to whenever he gets ready, and he don't have to explain it to anybody. He has the prerogative, wait a minute, to take what was meant for our destruction and turn it around for our deliverance. He has the prerogative and the power to take what was meant to knock us down and use it to build us up. See, that's, that, that's how power works. God's power, he allows us to be strained so that we can become strong. That's what happens in your physical life. If you go to the gym, the, the reason you're pushing those weights and doing this and doing that is you're literally breaking down muscle because God has put in the economy of our anatomy a process by which when muscles break down as they repair, they get stronger than they were before they broke down. I'm pointing this out just as an aside because right now somebody in this room is in a straining situation. And you're wondering how much more you can take. Listen, you better stay up under the weight because God is trying to build something in you for this next season. And if you don't get your reps in, you ain't going to be ready. Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In God's calculus, <laughs> whatever evil intended, God's prerogative is to superintend. He can, listen carefully, he can make something beautiful out of something ugly, and he can bring good out of evil, because he's better than your pharmacist. I have a little goddaughter who's a pharmacist, and uh, she takes chemicals that individually would cause harm but she knows how to put them together at exactly the right proportion. That what individually would kill somebody actually turns around and heals somebody. But God is better than your pharmacist. Even though the thing that happened might have been evil, he knows how to work it together for your good and for his glory. 
he's better than my Aunt Belle, my Aunt Belle, Eula Bell Copeland. When I was a child, she used to make me tea cakes. I know none of you are from the country, so let me explain what that is. A tea cake is not a cookie. It's a delicacy from the South that people would eat with tea. And I would say, hey, Belle, make me a tea cake. She would go in the cupboard and she'd pull out baking soda, she'd pull out molasses, she'd pull out this and pull out that. Every individual thing would taste nasty to me, but she would mix them together. But wait a minute, here's what I'm trying to get at. As she mixed them together in the appropriate proportion and then poured them into a vessel so she could put it in heat, sometimes she would let me lick the bowl. And here's what I like about it. What I was tasting on the bowl was a foretaste of what was happening in the heat. If you can get the right perspective, on what God is doing in your life, you can have a foretaste of glory divine while God is still baking on the main event. Joseph said, I'm not in the place of God. He has the prerogative of position. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good because he has the prerogative of power. He has the privilege of doing what no one else can do, and that is taking evil things and finding a way to weave them together in a beautiful tapestry of destiny to such an extent that when it's done, it's a beautiful thing. But not only that, look at what else he says. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. For what purpose? The purpose was to preserve people. Now this is interesting. To bring about, bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God's purpose is always to preserve, to keep that which he has created Notice how this thing works here. What Joseph has done, see, let me pause for a second. When we think about time, the future, and the past, we think of the future as before us and the past behind us. But in the Hebrew, the Israeli way of thinking, the future is behind us and the past is before us because I can only understand my life by looking back at the past, seeing where I've been. I don't know what's ahead of me, but I can see clearly what's behind me, and if I'm wise, I'll look at it from God's perspective and make sense out of my life. And if I do that, I'll recognize that evil can't frustrate God's initiative and it cannot derail the destiny of his people because my perspective on God will help me make sense of my life. Joseph said, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good, but what, for what purpose? Why, why did I have to go through all of this so that many people can be kept alive? Now, let's dig in right here for just a second and examine what 
actually happened. You understand, you know, he went to the pit, went to Potiphar's house, went to prison before he got to the palace. But there's a very interesting exchange in the middle of the book. You remember Joseph shows up on the scene in chapter 37 of Genesis. But if you remember in chapter 38 and 39, I'm taking a side right now just to talk Bible talk because we love the Bible. You'll, you'll recognize that in chapter 38 and 39, there's a comparison in the structure of this book between Judah and Joseph. And the comparison is there not just to point out the divergence of character between the two. Remember, Judah got caught up with a prostitute and eventually got his daughter-in-law pregnant. Joseph, on the other hand, in chapter 39, the Bible says that he rebuffed the advances of the real housewife of Egypt, Mrs. Potiphar. But that's not why that's there. If you read the text, Judah ultimately had Perez. That's how that chapter ends. And then in chapter 39, we see Joseph, and here it is. This is where I need to pull your focus. The focus on the chapter really ain't Joseph. The focus on the chapter is on the fact that every, at least three times in that chapter, the book says the favor of the Lord was on Joseph. Or the Lord, literally what it says is, the Lord was with him. Why was the Lord with him? The Lord was with him in the pit, in prison, and ultimately in the palace because he had to save Judah. Because it was through Judah that the promise was going to be fulfilled. He had to go through all of that to get to the palace to save his knucklehead brother because it was through Judah that the world would be saved because there's a lion that's coming through that tribe. There's a scepter that's never going to depart from that tribe. There's somebody who's coming out of the lineage of Judah and Perez and then all the way down through Ruth and Boaz, all the way down till we get to a little bitty baby in Bethlehem. He had to go through so he could come through with God's promises. God promised it was through Judah. But wait a minute. It gets better than this. God, he preserved many people. Now, look, look at how good God is, if you can get this in your purview. That God not only saved, listen carefully, Abraham's family, because he promised that Abraham would be the father of many nations and that through him the world would be blessed. The families of the world will be blessed. So he had to keep his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and now through Joseph, who kept alive Judah, that promise is fulfilled. But God is so gracious, he did not only save Abraham's family, he saved the Egyptians too. And not just the Egyptians, but all who came to Egypt to get provision from this one man, listen carefully, this one man who had been the favored son who was betrayed and then put in a pit and ultimately exalted. And because of that one man, the nations were saved. Because it ain't about Joseph. 
It's about the God who fulfills his promises. And it's about the God who fulfills his promises, not in this Joseph, but in a greater son who was more than a favored son. He was God himself, but took on a form even of a servant, became obedient not just to a pit, but even unto death. And right now is highly exalted at the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf and mine. Because look at that last lick. He says, not only did I go through this to preserve many people as they are alive right here today, but look at how good God is in the person of Joseph. He says, don't be afraid. I'm going to take care of you. Not just preservation, but provision. And notice how he says it. If you look in your Bible at verse 21, where he says, I will provide for you and your little ones. And he spoke, he comforted them and spoke to them kindly. It's, the Hebrew is striking when you read it. It's an emphatic I. I personally. It's not just generic generosity. It's not just philanthropy, but it's affection. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of your little ones. And in case you missed it, the Bible says, and he spoke to them gently and tenderly. The very ones who had done him in, the very ones who had committed evil against him, now here he is in position, wait a minute, because of his perspective on God and God's prerogatives, now he's able to not only forgive, but provide. Now, this, is, this has a lot of gospel applications, does it not? Because we see this as a type of Christ and how he has dealt with us. We also see it as a model for what those who follow Christ, those who have this mind in them that was also in Christ Jesus, how we ought to live. Well, how is it that we ought to live? First of all, I'm, I'm done. Thank you for your patience. I've just tried to get this little first lick out the way. and We're going to pick up speed tomorrow. How then ought we to live? It starts with your perspective on God. Here it is. Stay in your place. Get, stop trying to get God's seat. You ever been driving with somebody and they're in the passenger seat or they're in the back seat and they don't like how you're driving and they start pressing down on the mat like they got the brake over on their side? You, you stay in your seat. I, flew in a, a couple of hours ago, and how ridiculous, and this actually happened, how ridiculous when we landed, we, we were, uh, I don't know if the runway was short or what, but he was really putting on the brakes, and me and the lady sitting next to us, we was hanging on or whatever, but whatever we were doing was not affecting the plane at all. If we were behind time, if I started flapping my hands, that wasn't going to make us make up any time. Why? Because I'm not in the seat of the pilot. So here's what I do when I get on the plane. I get to my seat, I put my tray table up, I put my seatbelt on, and I relax. That's humility. Because I'm in my place. I'm trusting who's my pilot. Stay in your place. It's not your place to... It's not your place to change people. The Holy Spirit does that. You can't change nobody. <laughs> Why are you stressing out? You, you can't make 
grown folk do right? The best you can do is be clear on what God has said. Model it before the people like Ezra. Ezra set his heart to study the law and to do it and to teach in Israel his statutes and judgments. And then you leave the rest to the one who's in the pilot seat. Stay in your seat. Humility starts with the perspective on God and recognizing not only is he in the space that you cannot occupy, the space that sees things that you cannot see, but he has power that you don't have inherently and that you cannot embody. He has resurrection power. He has power that can not only pull up people from the pit, but pull people back from the brink of death. He has resurrection power, which means there's no habit that he can't break, no hang up, no hurt that he cannot turn around, no pain that he cannot help you process, and no demon in hell that can derail the destiny of God's people, because he got power, which means that he that began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I know, let's be honest, let me pause another second off script here. I know that if you're honest about where you are in life, that sometimes you might struggle with your own flesh and you might desire to be somewhere than where you are right now. You might have foibles and you might have flaws, but the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that no weapon formed against you will prosper, but more importantly, since he began a good work in you, he has the prerogative to decide how and when he's going to bring you through, but we know this for sure, that he has promised that he'll bring you through, and one day you're going to be like him. Amen. Yeah. Because what behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And that's what we are, even though the world doesn't recognize us as such. But this one thing we do know, that when we see him, we'll be like him. Why? Because evil cannot frustrate God's initiatives. What he started with grace, he's going to end with glory. But you will have a much sweeter journey if you'll recognize that you're not in the place of God, that he has all power, even to turn evil events to good outcomes, and that his desire is to preserve and to provide and to fulfill every promise, because every promise in God has its fulfillment in Christ. So stay in your place, trust in his power, and let God, listen carefully, use even the pain that you have to process in order to preserve many people. Because here's the thing. Joseph didn't start out humble. When we first saw him, God had revealed some things to him, and he's blabbing it all over the place. Y'all going to bow down to me one day. He didn't start out humble. By the time he got done with that pit, <laughs> prison, Potiphar's house, all of that type of thing, as he looked back over his life, he says, 
Now I know. I'm not in God's place. Y'all meant it for evil. That's all right. He calculated it for good so that all these people could be preserved. And now I'm going to provide for you in fulfillment of God's promises. That's where we'll start. Tomorrow we'll pick it up again and see if we can't move forward by God's grace. The low road, humility, the low road to glory is very often fraught with pain and suffering. But when you stay in place, God will make sure everything comes out all right. Thank you.